Welcome back to another episode of Mastering Money for Moms podcast, where we're discussing the two greatest generational gifts, raising a family and leaving a legacy. If you would, please like, subscribe, and share our podcast with others so we can help educate more people. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening. So welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Mastering Money for Moms. I am super excited about introducing you to Nina Kramer. Nina is a mom of four with one on the way. Yes, you heard it right. Another on the way. So she will have a total of five that she's taking care of. And it gets even better, folks, because she is also the business banking center manager and she's managing really large portfolios and owner and managing owners and their businesses, helping people get started in business. Um, she started out back in 2014 in banking, and she fell in love with the ability to give people a really unique personal experience at the bank. And because of her personal attention to them, she has worked her way all the way up into where she is today, where she's managing million-dollar portfolios. And so I'm super excited to have you on today, Nina. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Jennifer. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so her and I were speaking before we started airing this podcast, and we were talking about what's going on in the world today, and she is going to be talking about some really important topics such as the banking industry, the FDIC insurance, and also tips on how to set up your children for banking and just finances in general. So this is near and dear to all of our hearts. um, And it's a topic that's current right now. Um, So I'm just going to turn it over to you um, and let you take the stage and take us where you'd like to, to, you know, share, share your knowledge, please impart it. Wonderful. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think everybody, if they've got any sort of social media or they watch the news, they've probably heard about some of the bank failures that we've had in the United States. Um, and they might be concerned about FDIC insurance. So I wanted to take the time today to maybe explain the difference between what happened with SVB and compare it to what happened in 2008 and the differences there. And maybe kind of what happened with them, ways to like deep dive your own bank, and then also make sure that your FDIC insurance limits um, that you're using the calculator provided by the FDIC, they've got a really good one online. It's very easy to use and um, just make sure that your accounts are all covered. So with SVB, um, the reason they failed was because they had made some poor decisions with their investments. Um, So typically when you invest in bonds or T-bills, that's a long-term asset. And those are super safe. I would say a lot of my clients have bonds and T-bills. I myself have those. I think they're wonderful products. You just have to be able to make the time commitment to let those sit and mature all the way. And SVB got into trouble and they weren't able to actually let those mature in time to where they needed to sell them. When they did go ahead and start selling those assets, there was a $17 billion gap on their balance sheet between what they said they were and what they were actually worth. And so that's kind of how they got into trouble. Did you say 17, did you say 17 billion billion with a B? Billion with a B. B. Wow. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's a, 
it's a bummer that that happened because I think, you know, it made everybody really nervous and they shouldn't be. The majority of banks that we all bank with are very stable. They're not in that situation. Um, there is a heavy rate environment right now, and that's what caused the bonds to not be worth as much as they were, because when the Fed raises the rates, the rate of the bonds are going to go down, and that's kind of part of the reason why they also got into trouble. They had also invested in something called mortgage-backed securities, which if you know anything about 2008, you can remember that, oh, that I know that term. Why is that familiar? Um when 2008 happened, there were a lot of bad loans that were um, turned into these mortgage-backed securities where they take an illiquid asset, they bundle all those mortgages together, and then they sell them. And investors at the time could get a better return on their investment on the uh, interest rate that homeowners were paying versus the interest rate that they would have on, say, bonds and T-bills. And they were told that the mortgages were the best mortgages, the AAA rating, credit was perfect, income was like pristine, no issues. So they all invested in them. And I would say in the beginning, a lot of these mortgages were probably the bulk of them were good mortgages. And then they had those bad ones down at the bottom, just kind of mixed them together and sold them. Um, long story short, at some point they caught on, the investors caught on. But the problem was the larger banks had already bundled all these and they were stuck with all those bad mortgages. That's where they got into trouble. They had to start filing bankruptcy. And so the main difference between then and now is that the FDIC and the Fed bailed up the banks in 2008. They bailed up the banks. They were able to keep their assets. The shareholders were made whole. Um, they lent them the money. And those rates are sometimes where, I mean, the rate as low as 0.01 is what the banks took that loan for. And actually the six largest financial institutions on average made a 39% profit that year. That's, that's just crazy. And it, it lacks ethics in it my opinion. And mm -hmm. we don't hold the people that were in charge of those decisions accountable. No. And, and I think that's happened again with what happened at SVB. Yes. Yes. And, and when do you start holding people? I mean, that's, that's another topic completely. Right. So I don't mean to get us off topic, but keep going, please. And so it's, you know, still on that same kind of war path talking about 2008 and kind of the things that irk you or make you go, oh, that doesn't make me feel good that the government made that decision is um, the bailout when it was pitched to us, we were told it was going to be around $700 billion is what it was going to cost taxpayers. It ended up being, we found out years later that it was $7.7 .7 trillion with a T is what it ultimately cost to bail out the banks. Now, remember, they were loans. We are told by now that those loans have been paid back. We don't, never seen any proof, but we're told they're paid back, right? Um, and SVB, the reason why they stepped in was not necessarily because that bank was too big to fail. Like in 2008, um, in 2008, when they say that bank was too big to fail, some of the largest banks in 2000, or some of the biggest companies that banked with those larger banks in 2008 were. Exxon, AT&T, Walmart, 
General Electric, they're not banking at your small time credit union, they're banking at a larger bank. So if you can imagine FDIC insurance is 250,000, that's what it's always been since I can remember. And Janet Yellen has said that she has no plans to increase that, that it'll stay at the 250,000. Um, if you can imagine Walmart only having FDIC insurance up to 250,000, and then that's all they got, Walmart would have failed. Our entire economy would have failed. All those people would have been out of jobs. And that's just Walmart. That's not even the other larger companies, right? So when they say it's too big to fail, it's because all their businesses also would have failed. And then a lot of the times your small town credit union that you love, and it's like three generations, you know the owner, um, your grandfathers went to high school together, that situation, they all bank with a larger bank. They don't have a straight line to the Fed. They're going to bank with a larger bank. So they all would have failed. Like it was just one of those things where it's like they had to step in, they had to do something. So it's not like horrible what they did. It's just maybe they could have done it a little bit better, but at SVB to kind of set it separate, they are not bailing out the bank. They're bailing out the depositors and they're doing that to kind of keep um, keep from a run happening on other banks. So mm -hmm. if you remember, I had said in the beginning, well, SVB tried selling their assets to make their depositors whole. So there is a little bit of concern there. So if the FDIC and the Fed are stepping in and they're saying, well, we're going to sell their assets and make the depositors whole. My question is, are they going to be selling staplers? Like what assets are you selling to make these depositors whole? But I think it is important to know that the bank has failed. They're not bailing out the bank. The shareholders are not getting bailed out. Um, it's not a loan. They truly are only taking care of the depositors. And I think that's really important too. I didn't realize that. There's a lot that you said in there that I didn't realize, like Exxon and that Walmart and all these big companies that mm -hmm. are Fortune 500 companies have their investments with these banks. So yeah. to think that they're only insured up to 250, that's frightening. Um, I just assumed there that there was something different for a big business that would protect them. There is. So there is a program that my bank offers, and there is about 3,000 banks that participate in it in the United States. And there's more joining based off of kind of the environment that we're in. They're all applying to get into it. Um, and it's a program that's only ever been uh, that we offered to small businesses or businesses. We're offering it to uh, personal accounts now too, but it's called ICS. So it's uh, Insured Cash Suite. Basically, what happens is these 3,000 banks, we all got together and we said, hey, let's help each other out. And because businesses, their FDIC insurance is per their EIN, not necessarily their unique account uh, title, like a personal account. And I'll get more into the FDIC insurance and how that works, but they only have 250,000. That's all they have. So they come to us and they're like, hey, I've got millions with you. I'm going to need to withdraw and put it at. A bank and B bank and C bank, 250 here, 250 here, 250, you know, and that gets crazy if you have millions of dollars in your oh, business. Can you imagine absolutely. having no. to have all those online banking logins, all those relationships? That's crazy. So what we do is we set you up on ICS and we do the eggs in a basket for you, basically. So at midnight, that extra cash over that 250,000, it sweeps out to whatever number of banks we need to share those funds with. 
and then you're covered. So you're still FDIC insured because it's sweeping out at midnight. It's just going into these other banks. We're doing the split up of the basket for you. So you still have access to those funds. You still see it on your online banking. It's in a little account. It says ICS on online banking. And you can see all the money that's past your 250,000. Wow, that's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so let's talk about, I mean, man, you re- you went really deep. And so I, I appreciate, but you made it, um, you spoke in layman's terms. So I think we could all grasp that. So are you concerned about moving forward with people putting more money in the banking system? I mean, are you encouraging people to keep a little bit of cash on the side? I mean, what do you, what do you all recommend or what do you specifically recommend? Uh, so I have to be careful what I say, cause I'm technically not licensed, right? So I can't tell you exactly what to do, but I can tell you what to do with your, with your deposit dollars, your liquid cash as FDIC insured. I can advise you on that. Um, make sure that you're with a bank that their balance sheet is good. And that's a hard one to do because a bank, you can't just grab their balance. You can't just walk in and go to the teller line and say, Hey, can I see your balance sheet? You have to go to the SEC and pull their, uh, their K-10 form. And on there, there's a lot of, I mean, it's sometimes 30 pages long, but you can scroll down into the first 10 pages usually, and you'll see where their assets are. And you won't say exactly the details where they've invested them, but you'll be able to see where their liquid assets are, where their long-term investments are, um, where they are with their cash reserve. I think that's an important one is looking at a bank's cash reserve because that's what SVB got into trouble with. When 2008 occurred and Frank.Act came into place, it held every bank to the same standard, no matter if it was a large bank or a small bank. We're all held to the same standard. And one of those standards was having a cash reserve at a minimum of 10%. When COVID happened, that got dropped down to 0% and it has not increased. Wow. So some of our banks have no reserves. That's right. Yeah. They have no reserve. So do a deep dive on your bank and find out, do they have the cash reserve that they need? Um, There are some telltale signs right now in the market that you can tell if someone's in trouble or not. So if a bank is offering you a crate, like my, I would say my rates are very competitive. Like I I can be competitive, right? With my rates. Um, I've got some in the fours, but I'm not offering somebody 5% and it's because I don't need to, I, I don't need to buy balances. I'm not in a bad spot on my balance sheet. So if you have a bank in front of you that's saying, Hey, bring us your money. We'll give you 5%. There's probably something deeper going on there. What are they doing to where they have to go above and beyond everybody else to offer you that 5%. I'd be a little wary of that one. Um, you know, and then also if I'm offering somebody a 5%, now I can't be competitive with my lending and I still want to be able to help all my clients. Yeah. Oh, great tip. Okay. I like that. Cause we can walk into, you know, any community bank mm-hmm. and see exactly what they're offering. Cause they've got those okay. advertisements everywhere. So that's great. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So let's, is there anything else that we need to talk about regarding FDIC or what's going on in the banking world right now? Yes, yes. So just a couple more points to put on there is, you know, when was the last time your bank went through a stress test? 
When was the last time the Fed looked at them really hard? And your banker is not going to know that they're going to need to get back to you with a, you're going to have to ask that question and they're going to get back to you. Um, and then also looking at who do they lend to? Are they lending to a risky environment or are they only lending to say one, um, one industry like SVB at one point, 50% of our life science corporations and our technology corporations have depended on SVB for either their deposits, loans, or startup loans. So if you're with a bank and they're only lending to one industry or they're only um, accepting deposits primarily to one industry, that's really risky because what happens when there's a bunch of tech layoffs? You oh, know, yeah. they get in trouble. So make sure that they have a good spread they're lending okay. to everybody. And you know, with me, I've got a red and a green and a yellow of who I can lend to. And that changes all the time based on what's happening in each uh, industry. And so we are really good about spreading that out. And when we've maxed out a, a industry, we don't lend in that industry anymore. You know, now we're going to focus on another one. So you want to make sure that your bank is moving stuff around and they're not just focusing on one industry. And then with FDIC insurance on the personal side, it's per owner of each unique, uh, unique account titling. So for example, if we had an account and it was John Smith checking account, he would have that account insured up to 250,000. If it was John Smith and Jane Smith, it would be insured up to 500,000 because we've got two account holders. Okay. So it's 500,000, it's completely covered. We have two account holders, right? Wow. If we had three owners, now we're at 750. See what I mean? So you can yeah. increase your coverage based on owners. And then the unique account titling comes into hand when you're adding payable on death. So a POD. So let's say, you know, I'm in a situation where I've got four kids with one on the way at some point, maybe I'm going to run out of PODs. A POD doesn't necessarily have to be a person. It could be a trust, a business, a charity. You can put all that on there to protect yourself. And the FDIC, if you just go to their website or you Google FDIC calculator, it's a very easy calculator to use. I encourage everybody to go in there and plug in their information um, just, to, just to make sure they're covered. Okay, good, good tips there. I love that. Um, I didn't even know FDIC had a calculator. So this is awesome. Yes. Yeah. All right. Do we want to pivot to tips on how to set up our children to have the best practices? Yeah, I think that'd be great. Um, you know, and I can kind of, I can go off on like a rabbit hole on this, right? Too. So um, I think one thing that's really important is setting your kids up with an allowance. And that allowance should increase as they get older. And what I find is, you know, a lot of my, I, I mean, I'll have people who are like 25, they're still on their parents' phone bill. And I'm like, milk it for as long as you can stay on that phone bill, let them pay it. Right. And so you think about that and you go, well, I don't mind paying my kids' phone bill. They're in college. Like, I don't want them to have to worry about a phone bill. I think that's great. I would challenge you to say that if you are paying for their phone bill or their car insurance or their car payment, I'd encourage you to, instead of paying that expense directly, you're paying it anyways, transfer that money to their account and let them pay it. 
Oh, good advice. Okay. Because there's a lot of us. I mean, we've got a Verizon bill and there's five of us on that phone bill. And it's way less expensive than the very first phone line. So mm-hmm. why wouldn't they be on my phone line rather than this all pay 110 for the first phone line, right? I don't know what it is today, but um, that's off the top of my head. Now, I like that have holding them accountable to paying bills. That's important. Um, one of the things I have found because I rent out properties, a lot of people that are coming up through the system and, you know, they weren't taught this and it's not being taught. So, but when there's a due date, it's important to adhere to the due date because it impacts your credit score. I have a lot of students coming straight out of college, um, or maybe they've been in a job for a year or two and they're coming to rent from me and their credit score is horrible. And I had one person admittedly say that they didn't understand that the due date was really the due date. Like it has to be received by that date. And so it's important for us to talk about those things with our kids. Um, Now, as you're, you've got five kids and obviously, hopefully they're not all the same age, right? So they, they span some years there. What are you doing? What are some practices that you're using at home to teach your kids how to manage their money? Yeah. And so I think that's important is, you know, having that, that idea that like your kids are going to be on different levels financially. So it's really easy for, you know, I, I grew up in, um, in my home, you didn't talk about money, right? I didn't know what my mom made. I didn't know what my dad made for an hourly wage. I don't know what our mortgage was. I don't know if they had a car payment. Like, I didn't know any of that because they were under the impression that that was private and that shouldn't be shared. Um, I think it's important that your kids know how much money is coming into the house and what is going out. And again, that's just my personal opinion. Some people might think like, that's private. I don't want my kids to know how much money I have. Um, But I encourage you to maybe second guess that thought and let them know, Hey, dad makes this much. I make this much. Here's our joint account. These are the bills that come out. And when you explain to a child, the value of money, and you don't want them to keep that light switch on anymore. And you explain to them that our Evergy bill is $260 a month. They start to get it as they get older, you know, don't hide that kind of stuff from them. Uh, My 13 year old is going to start um, making a weekly wage this this summer. She's real excited. Um, She's going to be the chicken door opener in the morning and water all the flowers in the front yard. And so she's got a different requirement than say the twins, her younger brothers. They're not gonna be on that weekly salary yet uh, where they have like an actual job. They just have chores that they have to get done and then they get paid X, Y, Z dollars for said chores. Whereas like my littlest one, Ethan, he's still on his sticker chart. He gets cash here and there um, transferred into his account um, when he goes above and beyond, but he's still on a sticker chart. So you have to kind of figure out depending on their age. And then also depending on each child, right? So like Ethan seven, he's still on a sticker chart because that's what works for him. But when Piper was seven, she wasn't on a sticker chart anymore, you know? 
So it's adjusting to your child's personality and what motivates them. Right. It's no different than us as adults. Some people aren't motivated by money and instead they need the recognition, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I love that. Um, so as you're looking towards, um, well, let me go back to real, for, real quickly and talk about how your family didn't share any of that information. My family didn't either. I think it's probably more common than what you and I realize. Mm -hmm. I really don't think, and kind of like you, um, we didn't give out an allowance. I mean, that's different than you, but we didn't really talk about money until I got into real estate and somebody shared a personal financial statement with me and a schedule of real estate own, which is for short, it's called a PFS or a SREO. And when I filled that out for the very first time, I realized, wow, our, I need to share this with our kids. And I brought them in one by one and had a really in-depth conversation to share with them. Here's where we were. Here's where we, where we are today. And every single year. I revisit with each of them about here has here here's what's happened to our net worth as we've invested in single families and then when we made the jump to multifamily here is the impact that that has made and it's fun to be able to actually visualize it and for them to see it as well because all of a sudden their wheels start turning in their head and it's really important for them to see visually wow, this is the impact of everything mom and dad are doing. What can I do? And how can I make a difference in our family to contribute? Or when I step out on my own, what is that going to look like? And how quickly can I get into real estate or whatever investment vehicles that they choose? And what kind of impact am I going to be able to make? So it's so fun when you get to share that. And I don't think it should be kept secret. Now, there is a saying, um, what is it? Uh, loose lips sink ships. So yes. you have to be very, very careful about who you're giving that information to. So if we're talking about how much money you make, you, you probably need to figure out, okay, what's the appropriate age that you can confidentially share this with your child or young adult? And are they going to keep that to themselves? Because, you know, I know men primarily, they're you know, there's a little bit of an ego there that they want to keep that private. And I can respect that. And I, I appreciate that. So anyway, um, audience out there, you know, just take some of our tips, apply them to however you can. Um, are there any other, I like the sticker chart. I think that's very appropriate in the very beginning. Um, and then transitioning and just recognizing their personalities. Are there any other things you're doing around your home? I do want to talk about building credit. Yes. As, as teenagers are stepping up into their home and they're getting jobs, some of them are getting jobs, some of them are starting their own um, little uh, personal businesses. Mm -hmm. Can you help us understand what's the best way to build credit for them? Sure. Yeah. So I think that's great. I'm going to, I'll circle back to that. There are just a few other things that I want to talk about that we do kind of in our house and kind of also speak to what happened when I grew up. And I think what the reason why my parents didn't necessarily share that with me is because they were probably trying to protect me. Mm -hmm. We weren't really affluent. I grew up pretty poor. 
Um, I didn't know we were poor. I was having the time of my life. You know, I, I had no idea until later on. I was like, oh, maybe we were poor. Um, and so they probably didn't share that with me because they didn't want to stress me out or make me feel like we were in a bad spot. So I can understand if, you know, you're like, I am not going to share that with my kids because it would only stress them out. I understand that. And maybe like you said, if you don't want to share what you make, maybe just share the budget with them. You don't necessarily have to give them all the details. Maybe just tell them what's going out, but not necessarily what's coming in or something. Um, but it, one thing I will say is if you are in a position where, you know, I, I've got four kids, one on the way. If you've ever been in the impulse aisle buying where your kid is like, can I have that? I want that. Or like, it's really hard sometimes when you've got a kid that's like, I want this. And maybe it's not in the budget and you go, you know, your knee jerk reaction is no. Or you say, oh, I don't have them. We don't have the money for that right now. Like we can't buy that. I want to give some people some things to say instead, because I feel like that's something that we all run into at some point where we don't want to tell our kids. No, I would love to give my kids everything. I never want to tell my kids. No, you know? Um, so it's really important to say, like, I can tell you really want that toy. So you're validating their feelings and then making sure that you don't use the word, but but instead say, and I can tell you really want that toy and I'm going to help you work towards saving for it. So make it a goal. You don't necessarily have to say not right now, maybe next time, just let them know, okay, I can see you want that. I'm going to help you work towards that. And I think that applies at all ages. We've done that with Piper, right? So Piper wants a vehicle at some point. Okay. I want you to get a vehicle too. Let me help you get there. I love that. I would add on to that because I had four children all within six years. And one thing I was faced with, like everybody is, Hey, I want that. I want that. I want that. So we would start to prime our kids before we got to the store and said, listen, you know, there's going to be a lot of fun things in here that you're going to want, but we use quiet hands in the store and we only touch things that we actually intend to buy. Now there's going to be things you want to buy today and you're probably not going to be able to afford it. Or maybe to your point, how, you know, there's going to be a price tag attached to that and you may not have the funds today to buy that. So we'll come up with a plan after we leave the store, but you know, I expect you to respect our rules. And so you talk through some of that. So you don't have temper tantrums because, you know, we all face that and you're not going to have the funds all the time to do it, but you go with the intention of, okay, we're going to be well-behaved, but these are our expectations. And then the next time we come, if we weren't able to afford something or you couldn't buy, buy it because you didn't have the funds, we'll get it the next time, you know? Yeah. So I, I love that about the car. I think that's brilliant. Um, and I think that's very appropriate to help them set up goals so that they can reach that too. Yep. And I think, I think that is important what you said, making sure that you set the right expectations, you set your kid up for success in the store and you have that conversation before you walk in. And it's even goes so far to say, uh, we've got a list today and here's what's on the list. Do you want to help me find some of the items on the list? What are the items that you want to pick on the list to find in the store? So then they feel involved and they feel like they are getting something right. Cause they're, it's their turn to find the milk or something like that. So. Ooh, that that's, that's a great idea because then they're actually physically touching it and they're, they're responsible for that item. No, that's, that's really, really good. I like that. Yeah. 
um, you know, and, and something that we try to do as much as possible um, is asking your children, like, what can I do more of? What can I do less of? And then flipping that. Okay, I want you to do more of this and I want you to do less of this. I want you to have quiet voices in the store and I right. want you to touch stuff less, right? So that <laughs> coaching that you have with your boss, do it with your children. It can't always just be drilling down. And one thing that we are big on uh, is banking, right? Banking terminology is making deposits in your children. So when you do have to make that withdrawal, you're not overdrafting them. Yep. We do that in our marriage. Yes. <laughs> How yeah, many deposits have you put in today, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's great. Those so are good analogies. Circling back to credit, um, you can be 16 and have a credit card with your parents. So that's as early as you can go. And I would say that that's not the wisest thing for everybody because not all my clients are good with credit cards. So I can understand that you really want to help your kid. You're like, I want to help my kid with credit. But if you are going to use that credit card too in an emergency, then that's not the best, that's not the best way for you to build credit for your kid. Um, instead, I would say do a debit card. You can still get a little bit of credit on a debit card. Um, just having your name with Visa helps or MasterCard helps. It's not going to be as great as a credit card, but it's better than nothing. Um, so if you're not good with credit cards yourself, then maybe we can't do that for our teenager yet. Um, I would stick with a debit card with that. But if you are good with the credit card and you've got that credit card, a lot of the times, um, unless it's a business card, you can't necessarily put limits on it, right? So if you're a co-signer on that credit card, you have full access to that credit line. All right. So if we get a Chase card and that credit line is $15,000 and you put your 16-year-old on there as a co-signer, they got $15,000 they can spend on that card. So you got to figure out the best way to make sure that that's included in that allowance. Mm -hmm. How much can they spend on it? That's, that's really good. So when we were raising our kids and they were of age to get a debit card, that's exactly what we did. And we put $300 into their account and they were able to withdraw and pay for things when they went to the store, whatever their needs were. Um, or as teenagers, they love clothes. They want to look stylish and in fashion. So when we're out shopping and they see something and they say, mom, can I have it? I'm like, well, I'm not going to buy it for you, but you can. And then it, it changes because all of a sudden they're like, hmm, how bad do I really want it when they're spending their own money? It's a fabulous test of how bad do I want this thing? And, you know, and yeah. the value that you associate with it. And nine times out of 10, they're like, yeah, I don't want it that bad. So it, it really helps set the tone for how they spend money in the future. And it's been really effective to watch my kids grow up and now they have responsibilities and they have bills to pay. And so far, so good. Knock on wood. Nobody's charged up $15,000, you know, and, and honestly, they never had a credit card with us. Um, so that, that worked out well, we added one later, but that was in college, but they had proven themselves that they were responsible and could handle it. But, um, yeah, in the high school years, that's a perfect way to teach them the value of a dollar and 
kind of what you're, what you're discussing. Yeah. And I, I think that's important if also because you get to learn the spinning pattern of your children. So like Drew is my super saver. He's like, like, uh, if you go, Hey, I want to buy this. I really want this. And if I go, okay, I'm not buying it, but you can, he's like, Oh no, never mind. <laughs> I'm good. I don't really need that. Whereas Piper, uh, my oldest, if she's like, I really want this. And I'm like, well, how much money do you have in your account? She's like, I've got 40 bucks and it's 39.97. I'm swiping, you know, <laughs> <laughs> my kid that I probably need to like have more conversations with, you know what I mean? So you, you get to know like how your kids spin early on. So you can pay attention to who, who needs more guidance here than the other. Oh, that's, that's so fun. I, I love that. And that she did that, you know, oh, I've got $40. I'm, I'm doing it. I'm going for it. Yeah. Yeah. That that's so great. So let's transition real quickly. I know we're coming close on time here, but how can you advise clients to save more money so they can get a home? Do you have any tips there? I do. And it's not always like a fun one, right? So you have to really narrow down where you're spending and how much you're spending, right? So everybody loves Target. Everybody loves Starbucks. And I know that sounds so cliche to say, stop spending money where you don't need to, but really, why don't you go through and pull your account for the last year and take the time. It's going to take some time to pull those statements, find out how much money you spent at Starbucks. It's depressing. It is depressing. And we, it, it's, it's eye-opening, right? I had, I literally, when my kids were little, I said, honey, don't deposit your check anymore. Let's just make it payable to target. <laughs> because I realized, and I literally cut myself off once I realized, because I did a deep dive, like you're suggesting, and we started categorizing how much we spend on going out to eat, how much mm -hmm. we spend on alcohol and targets and coffee and just, and you realize really quickly, wow, these are luxury items and they're not bringing us any closer to our goals. So we yep. need to reevaluate why we're buying them. And I didn't mean to cut you off. Please keep oh, going. Oh, no, you're good. I was just going to say, we, you know, we did that one year where my husband and I, um, you know, it wasn't really that big of a deal um, because financially we weren't in a situation where that $5 swipe was that big of a deal, right? Well, one year we said, you know, we never do New Year's resolutions. We said, we're not going to Starbucks this year. You know how much money we saved? And I don't even know. You know what I mean? Like, it was wild. Um, you know, and there, there's other things that are like, it's just not fun to save money sometimes. I get it. I, it's not the most fun thing, but I tell you what, as soon as you see that account start going up, that's where the fun is. When you start seeing multiple hundreds of dollars, and then you get to that thousand dollar mark, then you are starting to get, you'll get hooked to saving versus spending and shop at secondhand stores. If you can, there's some really good secondhand stores. Um, your kids are going to tear up their clothes anyways and get stains on them and they're going to get ripped. Try to buy secondhand as much as you possibly can. Um, I would also say maybe evaluate what's important in your life. Is that name brand that important? Do you really need that really 
expensive purse to hold your sunglasses and your water bottle, or can one from Walmart hold it just as good, you know? So find out where your priorities are. Do I want this coach purse really bad? Or do I want to buy a house really bad? Which one do I want more? And then also, um, Every, you hear the term house broke or house poor, you can be car poor. So I just had an associate of mine, she, you know, she's like, I need to buy a new car. And I said, you know, I wish that I had the advice that I did, you know, when I was buying a car, because my minivan now, um, I love it, but it's got all the bells and whistles. And I look at it now and I think back and I go, why didn't I just buy something for $10,000? Why didn't I just get something to get me to A and B? I don't need the nicest, bestest vehicle, you know? And so not having that car payment would be amazing, you know? Mm -hmm. And so she's like, that's good advice. I go, it doesn't matter what you drive. And if you've got somebody in your life that's judging you based off of what you wear, what purse you carry and what car you drive, then they shouldn't be in your life. Amen. I agree. And when the kids are young, they don't need the Nike tennis shoes. They don't even know what Nike is. You're the one giving them that. I started shopping at garage sales for our kids' clothes because they wear them once and they've outgrown them and they're just in perfect condition for the most part until they're six or seven, right? Yeah. And um, the other thing I'm just going to add on to what it, it does become fun when you start to see your account grow. And somebody, I read a book recently and it said, stop calling it a savings account. Instead, call it an opportunity fund. And that is such a, a great word because opportunity fund says, wow, what are we going to do to change our lives, change our kids' lives? And so now every time I sweep money over to our savings account or our opportunity account, I think, okay, what's the next house or what's the next multifamily property we're going to buy? I, I can't wait. So, you know, you're slowly building your empire and that's, that's all about, you know, the, that's the whole point of leaving a legacy, right? Mm -hmm. But we have to be wise and we have to teach up our young ones to learn from our lessons and not be haphazard with whether, whatever we give them. Because if they don't learn what we're learning, then they're just going to waste it all away. So it's it's equally important to teach them how to be good advisors and be prudent with what we're get what we've been given and what we're blessing them with. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's so right. um, let me. I, I probably need to circle back and ask you how can people find you and reach out to you because you've been a wealth of information. Sure. So the best way to get a hold of me um, would be on my LinkedIn, I would say. Uh, that's a great way to get a hold of me. So you spell my name N E E N A. Kramer is K R E M E R. And you can find me on LinkedIn. That would be the best way to get a hold of me. So with lots of lots of E's. All <laughs> E's. All, All E's. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much. I'm gonna have to have you back on. I would say in the next six months to a year and see what the fallout, if there is any mm -hmm. from all this banking stuff and get more tips on, on, on you and also see how this next baby is doing. Yes. Oh, I would love to. 
Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. And uh, listeners, if you like this podcast, we ask that you share it, like, subscribe, and leave us a rating so we can grow our audience. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Mastering Money for Moms podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, follow, and leave a rating or review because it helps support the growth of this podcast. Also, I'd be so grateful if you would please share our podcast on Instagram and tag me at Mastering Money for Moms to help us grow our community of mothers. We'll see you on the next episode of Mastering Money for Moms.